We will address the question today, why bother with baptism? Now, with all the suffering in the world, why bother with something as seemingly unimportant and optional as baptism? We are in week two of a brief three-week series, Sinners in the Hands of a Sovereign God, and we ask a question in the light of God's sovereignty, we show why it's important, and then how we should respond. Last week, we were in John 9, why so much suffering? Why Haiti? Why Afghanistan? Why the wildfires and random violence and COVID-19? We saw that God gives suffering the very thing you don't want so that you would set your eyes on Christ. That suffering is the vehicle for God's works in spite of man's sin for God's glory. Next week we will be in Matthew chapters 5 and 18. Why repent? Why reconcile? But today, why bother with baptism? Which, by the way, might seem a little tone deaf in this Afghanistan moment or just in light of the pain that is in your life. Many things grab our attention in life. They stop you in your tracks. 9-11 did that. COVID-19 did that. Death does that. The terror attack in Kabul last week did that. The nations are raging. I almost called an audible and preached a different passage of Scripture today. And switched passages of Scripture. And then I realized what was happening in the book of Acts is somewhat similar to what's happening today. It isn't so different than what's happening today. Sinful man perpetrating evil against sinful man. A sovereign God with the world in his hands. Mankind heinously lashing out. God in control, working it all out. And at the very same time, Christians applying the gospel to everything, to every situation. And God transforming lives by his grace and leading people to repentance and the church making disciples and baptizing and teaching them to obey Christ who is with us always. So there's nothing more practical, nothing more pertinent, nothing more pointed than preaching Christ crucified, risen, reigning now and returning with all the suffering. Why bother with something so seemingly unimportant and optional as baptism? I mean, think about it. What have you heard or been taught about baptism? Some of you were taught that it washes away original sin. Some of you were taught that baptism saves you. What have you heard or been taught about believer's baptism? Hopefully you've been taught that it's a picture of Christ's death and resurrection. What have you heard or been taught about not having to be baptized to go to heaven? Surely you've heard from me and others that there is an example of someone who came to faith in Christ and wasn't baptized, the thief on the cross. And you might have never heard of this or thought of this before. You might not have ever thought about why is baptism so important to the Christian life? So here's your opportunity. Baptism 
It is one of the most misunderstood and mistaught practices among Christians. And so here comes Acts 16 to the rescue to clear up the confusion. Because Acts 16 tells us the gospel will go forth. God will open hearts no matter how evil man gets. God's work is always being done. God is sovereign. God saves. But still, why bother with baptism? The reason is because God says so. God tells us to bother with baptism. To obey Christ's command and go make disciples, the imperative, make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe everything that God has commanded and remind them Jesus is with us always. We must absolutely bother with baptism. Baptism is essential. It is the first step in a believer's ongoing sanctification. You are in one of three groups today. You are either an unbaptized believer, which means you're disobedient to Jesus. You are a baptized unbeliever, which means you're blinded to Christ. Or you're a baptized believer who is not resting on that baptism, but is growing in Christ. Now let's start in Acts 16 and verse 11. We'll look first at the conversion of Lydia and her household. And then we'll see later on in the chapter the conversion of the Philippian jailer and his household. And what you'll notice is some very important things about baptism that I will bring up for the remainder of the sermon after we go through these two passages. You start in verse 11. You see that Paul and Silas and Timothy joining them are going to... uh, Troas. They're coming from Troas to Samothrace, and they go to an island in the Aegean Sea between Asia Minor and Greece. And they stay there to avoid sailing in the dark. Then they go to Neapolis, and then they go to Philippi. Neapolis was the port city of Philippi. Philippi is 10 miles inland. It's named after Alexander the Great's father. It was this independent, tax-exempt Roman colony. And what that means is it was like a transplant of Rome or Italy into another place. The gospel wouldn't necessarily be the thing they're asking for there. Unlikely to be open to the gospel. And on a Sabbath, tells us in verse 13, on a Sabbath, they go down by the riverside to a place of prayer. The Jewish community there was not big enough for a synagogue. You needed 10 heads of households to make a synagogue. And so they sit down by the riverside and they start to speak to some women who had congregated there at this place of prayer. And there was a woman named Lydia. She was from Thyatira. Very interesting that God had directed them away from Asia, and here is a woman from Asia. Thyatira is in Asia. And she is a seller of purple fabrics, and she is a worshiper of God. She wants to know the truth. Thyatira was famous for its dyes. Uh, It was very much in demand for for the fabric, for the official toga of Rome and its colonies. This purple dye, very expensive, worn by royalty. Uh, Only the very wealthy could, could have it. And here is this wealthy woman with a home big enough to host a church, as you'll see later in the chapter. And what happens? It says that the Lord opened her heart. That's not a physical opening of the heart. It is a a spiritual opening of the heart. It's in the active voice here. God did it. She did nothing. God opened her heart, 
And we're seeing now God's sovereignty and salvation because he opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. He's preaching the gospel. He's explaining the truth about Jesus. And she's listening, but it also means that she's obeying. She's locked in. God opens her heart to believe what was said. And I look at verse 15. Put your eyes on verse 15. It's like, wow, wait a minute, hold on, what happened? After being baptized... That they weren't coming to town and saying, by the way, we're doing baptisms out by the riverside. Meet us there. Whoever you are, we're just going to do that for you. No, they're preaching the gospel, and God opens her heart to believe the message. She believes in Jesus, and right away gets baptized. And that's in the passive tense. She was baptized. She didn't baptize herself. She was baptized along with her household those who had also believed. It would include servants. It would include other dependents, maybe some of the women from the riverside. And then right away, and you'll notice, this is, this, is, this is great. Right away, hospitality comes out of her heart. She invites them to stay at her home. And then she says this, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay. Well, hold on a minute. She just heard the gospel. She believes and gets baptized. And she's saying, and by the way, am I faithful to the Lord? And, and yes, is the answer. You, you heard the gospel and believed, and then you obeyed what he said. You got baptized in obedience to Christ. And God had opened her heart to believe and be baptized just like that. It's like C.S. Lewis who said, you know, I got on the bus a pagan, and I got off the bus a believer. It's like when you get saved, you spend the rest of your life amazed at the grace of God in Christ, blown away that God would open your heart to the message of the gospel of the grace of God in Christ and lead you to faith and then obey Jesus' first discipleship command and be baptized. Now move on to near the end of the chapter. Go to verse 25. We're going to look at the conversion of the Philippian jailer and his household. He's an unnamed man. We don't want to get his name. He's He's a jailer. This unnamed man cries out, what must I do to be saved? How did he get there? Well, Paul and Silas had been thrown in jail for their faith in Christ, for preaching the gospel. And midnight, Paul and Silas are singing praises to God. And they're praying. And the prisoners are listening to them. And all of a sudden, big earthquake. I mean, we live in California right now. We could have a big earthquake, like, you know, right now, right? Don't mean to, you know, get you alarmed. But it happens if you live in California. I grew, I'm a born and raised Californian. It's like, be always ready. Don't think about it, but just be ready when it comes. And an earthquake hits, and the foundations of the prison were shaken. Their shackles fall off, the doors are opened, and the jailer wakes up, realizes everyone's going to scurry out and and escape, and so he's about to kill himself. Because if he loses his prisoners, he's done for. His commander will take care of that. And Paul says loudly, can you imagine the rubble and the... the, uh, commotion and the confusion and dust and 
everything, and he says, don't harm yourself. We're here. We're not going anywhere. The man then cries out. What must I do to be saved? So like his immediate need was don't be killed for losing your prisoners, but his big need was salvation in Christ. And this all came about because unbelievers were harassing Christians for preaching the gospel. And so he says, what must I do to be saved? In the passive tense, he's saying, I need someone to rescue me. I need to be saved from my sins. Who's going to do it? How's it going to happen? And they say, verse 31, look at verse 31. You've heard me say this. If you've heard me preach, you've heard me say this. If you've been here for like four weeks, you've heard me say it twice already probably. He, they said, believe, an imperative. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And they're not saying, by the way, we're giving out you know, free salvations here. If you get saved, you get some bonuses. You get some bonus tickets to give out to your household, and they can just get in free. They don't have to believe. They can just, you know, come with you. They're like, believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved. If you believe, you'll be saved. If anyone in your household believes, they'll be saved. 1 John 3, 23 says, this is his commandment. That, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. It is crystal clear that salvation is only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Acts 4.12 said that there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. What a glorious truth to know that the only way to be saved is Jesus. And they tell him, and it says in verse 32, they speak the word of God to him and everyone in his house. They explain the gospel. They preach the gospel. And his pressing need was to be saved from his sins. And he hears the gospel, and he hears it proclaimed, and he responds in faith. He believes in Jesus. Do you know what it means to believe in Jesus? To believe in Jesus means that you believe that he is who God's word says he is. He is the sinless, sovereign savior, the son of God who died for sinners that are separated from God due to their sin. You believe that he is who God's word says he is. And you believe what God's word says he did, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, that he died for our sins, our substitute in our place. He died for our sins. And he was buried. And he rose from the dead. He is reigning now, and he is returning. Do you believe that? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. This is for you today, right now. August 29th, 2021. Your pressing need, if you're not a believer, is to be saved by Jesus. To be saved from your sins, to be saved from the wrath of God. By the way, the guy brings him into his house and washes their wounds. Such hospitality. They surely would have been bruised and a bit broken up and bloodied. And he washes them and feeds them. And, but he is rejoicing with his household. Why? He's rejoicing because they had believed. They're rejoicing in the salvation that God granted. 
They've been transformed. They've been freed from the power and penalty of sin by Jesus. And it's all because God intervened providentially. He gets Paul thrown in prison. He gets the prison shaken by an earthquake. And he, he, he saves the jailer and members of his household. And you're thinking today, how does that Romans 8.28 thing really going to work out in my life? God works all things together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And then they leave. Just like that, they, they leave. If you go down to the, to the end of the chapter, they, they visit Lydia on the way out of town. They encourage the church. Presumably at this point, there's a church meeting in her house. They went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and they'd seen the brothers. They encouraged them and departed. Appealed, exhorted the believers to continue in Christ, and they leave Luke to help. And what we see in the example of Lydia and her household and the Philippian jailer and his household is that God opens the hearts of whomever he has chosen that they would believe the gospel and be saved and then take the first step of obedience in discipleship to Jesus and get baptized. And I want to tell you, the significance of believer's baptism is probably more than you think. Again, this is the sermon that you didn't want to hear. Who wants to hear a sermon about baptism? This is a sermon about Jesus and what he does and what he asks for, what he expects. The significance of believer's baptism, why believer's baptism matters so much I mean, we just had a baptism two weeks ago. If you got baptized two weeks ago, this is review for you. I'm going to give you four things. If you're taking notes, I'm going to give you four truths about baptism that this illustrates and the whole New Testament illustrates. Four truths about baptism. And the first is this. Believer's baptism is submission to the lordship of Christ. Believer's baptism is submission to the lordship of Christ. It is an act of submission. There has been a radical change that has happened in your life. There's a pattern to be followed in the Bible where there's been this radical turning from sin to Christ. There's a change of allegiance in your heart, and there's an inner repentance and faith that happens, and then an outer baptism that symbolizes it, that shows it. And this is what God commands. You can ask the question, why did Jesus... Make the first step of obedient discipleship believer's baptism. I don't know. He said it. That's enough for me. He, he said it. After the cross, it becomes a matter of obedience. And I, I don't know how many times I've used the example of the thief on the cross so many times to make the point that you don't need baptism to get to heaven. You don't need baptism to get saved. Baptism doesn't forgive you of your sins. Baptism doesn't cleanse you from your sins. Baptism doesn't give you new life in Christ. But at the same time, that idea, well, the thief on the cross didn't get baptized, can be used wrongly to make baptism seem an unnecessary, inconsequential, even silly choice that you get to make when you feel like it. I'm going to wait till the water's warmer. You know, uh, <laughs> it's summertime, people, in California. Baptism doesn't save you. You need to be baptized out of obedience to Christ as a believer in Christ for your sanctification. It is essential for your sanctification. 
Some of you got stunted in your Christian life because you didn't get baptized when you got saved. Because you're thinking, I don't need to do that. Well, what other command of Scripture are you saying, I don't need to do that? I mean, don't look for loopholes. It's wrong to say, well, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized, and that's good enough for me. So I don't need to do it. Yes, some people believe and are saved and then die on their deathbed. Or, or in the example of the thief on the cross, he died on his death cross. But the norm is believe and be baptized. Don't be looking for the loopholes. You need to be baptized if you're a believer in Jesus. And, and again, if you, can, if you can disobey this command, this really simple one, what other commands in Scripture do you think are optional? The gospel, if you come to know Jesus, it makes you obedient. That's why these people were getting baptized right away. Because Jesus said to do it. God's commands are not some item on a buffet. I can take that, maybe a couple of those, one of those. I think if more people got baptized soon after conversion, maybe there'd be more obedience to the other commands of Scripture. In the power of the Holy Spirit, for the glory of God. Obedience to Jesus' first discipleship command helps you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God is pleased with obedience. Obedience brings blessing from God. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and he says this. He's preaching the whole gospel. He's tying in the whole Old Testament and he's showing how there's a golden thread of gospel truth all the way through. And then he sums it up and says, let all the house of Israel know God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And they hear this, and they're cut to the heart. They're convicted of their sins, and they say to Peter and the apostles, what shall we do? Peter says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. The idea of because of the forgiveness of your sins, believe in Jesus, turn from your sins, and then turn right away and get baptized to show that you have been forgiven. Because they're doing exactly what Jesus said. Before the ascension, after the resurrection, Jesus gathers them together and says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples. There's the imperative command, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Trinitarian baptism. And then teach them all that I commanded you, especially that first command of baptizing, getting baptized. And you could ask, well, are there any other examples of unbaptized believers in the Bible beside the thief on the cross? I want to get in on this. Maybe there is a, a loophole. I'm like, well, there's actually a ton of them in the Bible. They're called Old Testament believers. You wouldn't be in that category. You can call the thief on the cross the last Old Testament believer, just like John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, and none are baptized until after the resurrection and Pentecost. You don't get baptized to go to heaven, but you need to get baptized as a believer in obedience to Jesus now. It's unbiblical to say baptism is only if I feel like it. In Acts 2, it said that all who, were believe, all who believed were baptized, and it was added that day 3,000 souls. That was a big church. They all got baptized. It wasn't like, we're going to do 2,500, but there's 500 holdouts. They're going to wait till the spring. And, and there, is, there is 
no scriptural command that is optional where Jesus says, you know, whatever you want to do, it's up to you. I mean, I'm Lord in everything, but whatever you want to do. If you don't want to do it, it's okay. If you're shy, if you think it's silly, if you just don't want to do it, if you don't like getting your head put underwater, I'll give you an exemption. Baptism isn't something that Jesus said you can do if you want, and if you don't want, it's okay. Now, disobeying the command won't keep you out of heaven, but seriously, why would you want to forfeit God's blessing that gives assurance, and maybe when you get into that really tough time of life, you would say, wow, I know I belong to Christ. I believe, I was baptized, and I'm still obeying. I didn't just go, I checked the box, I got baptized, I'm good. No, I'm following Christ, I'm pressing on to know the Lord. I'm opening up my Bible every morning and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do today? Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow you. I, I want what you want. I want your will to be done. It's the first step of obedience, baptism. And no one who ever gets baptized is perfectly obedient. But so many of us have made it, and I'll put it on the church. We just make it an individual choice. That's the question. Is it an individual choice or a community action? The answer is yes. It is a believer's obedience, but it is the church's obedience to the command of Christ. The church must baptize. You get baptized passively. You don't baptize yourself. We make it this personal choice, decision. It is a community action. You make a disciple. You baptize them. You teach them. They agree as the church initiates it. How do you find out about it? How did the Ethiopian eunuch find out that he should get baptized? Because Philip told him. In Acts 8, it even says, look, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? He's saying it. He's like, what do I do? Hey, can I get baptized? I mean, and again, passive. I want to I, I be baptized. Well, it must have been explained that he had to be baptized. He sees water. He's very observant. Wow, there's some water. Let's do this. You see, the church baptizing willing believers. It's that immediate obedience that every parent wants from their kids. Believer's baptism is commanded. If you disobey this command, what are the commands you're going to disobey? But when you start seeking God's glory in everything, it becomes your greatest joy to do everything God commands. Knowing that Jesus enables your obedience, knowing that he is pleased when you obey and wants you to obey to glorify him. I think if you take most seriously Christ's death and resurrection and you want to proclaim it and you want to obey what God says that the gospel becomes increasingly sweet to you. Christ becomes increasingly beautiful to you. The gospel shines more brightly through you. So it's first and foremost submission to Christ. That's what believer's baptism is. Secondly, believer's baptism is a confession of personal faith in Christ. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul told the Corinthians, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The idea is when you proclaim that Jesus is Lord with your mouth, it's because you have believed it in your heart. You're not just saying things, but you're saying what you believe. You're saying what the Bible says. Interestingly, Philip told the Ethiopian eunuch, and it's, it's not in the most 
the oldest trans, uh, translations, manuscripts, but in Acts 8, 37, like ESV doesn't even have verse 37, he says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Like he says, are you confessing faith in Christ here? But of course, he is confessing personal faith in Christ because you must be born again. First of all, to be justified. But you must be baptized if you want to get on the road of sanctification. Go do it. Biblical pattern. Believe and be baptized. Baptism never precedes conversion. It doesn't come before you get saved. It, it follows it. That's the biblical pattern, that you give a testimony of faith. And, the, and your testimony of faith doesn't save you. You're telling what happened. In Acts 9, there was a conversion, then a baptism. We should baptize believers as, as soon as possible after conversion. In Acts 10, there was conversion and baptism. There was evidence of new birth in the lives of Cornelius and his household. There was this evidence of transforming grace. There's no reason why they shouldn't be baptized upon their profession of faith in Christ, upon their testimony of faith in Christ. We've left it undone. The 1552 Book of Common Prayer has a general confession, and among the words in it are these, We have strayed from your ways, O Lord, like lost sheep. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. Have you left baptism at the altar? You came to faith in Christ and kept running and said, I don't need to do that. The Bible instructs the church to baptize those who have faith in Christ. There's no minimum age given. There's no maximum age. You just believe in the Lord. And even Peter said on the day of Pentecost, the promise is for you and your children and for all whom the Lord will call to himself. You come to faith in Christ and then you're baptized. After the resurrection, a Trinitarian baptism is commanded. After your personal response to the gospel, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized. Who should do that? Who are the proper recipients of baptism? All believers. All believers should be baptized. Jesus commands it. Preach the gospel. Make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them. No age limit upon who can come to be baptized except a believer. The Bible's assuming you believed and responded to the gospel. You believed in the Lord Jesus and are saved. Go get baptized. That's only those that are saved should be baptized. Anyone who isn't regenerate, anyone who there's no evidence of saving faith shouldn't be baptized. It's not like, hey, let's get them baptized. Maybe they'll get better. You trust the profession of faith given, and some turn out to be false. They leave the faith. They slip through the cracks. It happens. But you trust the profession of faith, and you baptize them. And then you call them to believe and obey what the Bible says in the power of the Spirit. You, you go on in faith. Now, what about infant baptism? Some of you were infant baptized. I, I'm going to take Alistair Begg's uh, uh, position here. I will leave its defense to those who choose to practice it. If, if you want to defend infant baptism and practice it, you're going to have to make your case. But infant baptism is not found in God's Word. Those who do so, infant, baptize infants, do so from Scripture's silence. It is not forbidden. It is not commanded. Nowhere in the Bible is there any example of an infant being baptized. The only examples in the Bible are of believers being baptized. Now, what did people bring children to Jesus to do? Baptize them? No. Bless them. The New Testament is silent on infant baptism. All New Testament instances are of believers being baptized. 
Even the connection between circumcision and baptism is not made in the plain, obvious teaching and preaching of the apostles. We should baptize any believer who comes to faith in Christ and desires to be baptized. Do it. Don't, don't, don't withhold the water to anyone who wants to obey Jesus as a testimony of faith. Some people say, oh, but kids can't get baptized until a certain age. Not says, the Bible doesn't say that. Although if you have young children who, who get saved and say, wow, look, the Bible says you get baptized, ensure they have a solid testimony of faith in Christ. And they, they can articulate the faith. They're willing and able to give a testimony. But don't say wait till you're older because you're basically telling them to disobey Scripture. I think what parents should do is remind their children on an ongoing basis, recall to them when they were born and even when they came to faith in Christ and when they were baptized, because we don't remember every single thing that happens in our life, but it's not true that, oh, it wasn't valid because I don't remember it this very second. What you need to do at your baptism is try your testimony on for size and realize you're going to be living with it your whole entire life on earth. You get one testimony of faith in Christ. You can reword it in different ways, but try your testimony on for size and get used to it because God will use it. God will use your testimony of faith. It will speak loudly to people. Trust God to draw people through the gospel. I love 2 Corinthians 2.14. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere we go. And to those who are being saved, it's an aroma of life. To those who are perishing, it's the stench of death. They will hate the message or they'll believe it. What you get to do as a believer is praise the glories of God's grace permanently, continually, gladly, joyfully. So believer's baptism is a submission to Christ. It is a confession of faith in Christ. And thirdly, baptism expresses your union with Christ. Your union with Christ. Now this is where you're going to have to stick with me because it's, it's a bit confusing. But it illustrates the the spiritual union that you have with Christ as you're identified with his death and resurrection. And you need to also remember that not every reference in, to baptism in the New Testament is water baptism. Some just refer to being fully immersed in Christ and you are being reminded of what God did when he saved you. But if you turn quickly with me to Romans chapter 6 and look with me at the first five verses... Paul begins, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? It's the idea of your position in Christ. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we might too walk in newness of life. This is not talking about water baptism. Like, seriously? Uh, people will say, baptism forgave me of my sins. I now have a new life in Christ because I got baptized. You're misunderstanding the gospel. You have a new life in Christ because Jesus saved you. You have a new life in Christ because you believe the gospel and Jesus is now with you always, and he wants you to obey by being baptized. Now, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, said this, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Your union with Christ 
is this. This is what Romans 6, 5 says. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Colossians 3, 4 says Christ is our life. Galatians 2.20 says Christ lives in me. The idea is God made you his, chose you for adoption, and he made a unilateral covenant, an unchanging reality in your life. So it's unbiblical to say that baptism saves or ensures your forgiveness. It illustrates the reality of your union with Christ in salvation. Our union with Christ, by the way, is a neglected truth. It's profound. It's often unexamined. To our shame, we need to get into the word and see. It is often overlooked. It is often left on a shelf, often because you cannot easily reduce it to 140 characters. It's hard to comprehend, but the scope of our union with Christ is all-encompassing. You have to think vastness like the Grand Canyon or like galaxies. It's woven into the fabric of how God saves, uh, and you can actually boil down this incomprehensible doctrine to two words. Two words, in Christ, in Christ. The Bible repeats it so often that every aspect of Christian life is described as in Christ or in him, that believers are hidden with God in Christ. So there's a changed allegiance in your life. You've cut the umbilical cord with the world. You have a new master. You have a new homeland. You have a new loyalty and you've been joined to Christ, so all the gospel riches are now yours. This is why it says in Ephesians 1.3, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. A believer is united to Christ in, in the election of God's grace in the eternal counsels and decrees of God before the foundation of the world. A believer is united to Christ at the cross when Christ died as your substitute. A believer is united to Christ when they are born again by the Holy Spirit. You are said to be justified in Christ, adopted in Christ, sanctified in Christ, glorified in Christ. And what this does, it helps you appreciate the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Christ. And what baptism does is pictures that union illustrates that union. Baptism for a believer is submission to Christ in his lordship, confession of Christ, and pictures the, their union, your union with Christ. And the last point, number four, is the baptism for a believer is identification with Christ's church. It symbolizes admittance into the visible body of Christ. It's an ordinance of belonging. It's, it's membership. As soon as the ascension, it was assumed that every believer would be baptized in obedience to Christ and be a part of a local assembly of believers. They'd be a part of the worldwide body of Christ and link up with a local assembly. You see it in the book of Acts. And, again, going back to the day of Pentecost when he said, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's a big church. And remember, it is for... You and your children and all whom the Lord our God will call to himself and those saved were baptized. This is what God does. Jesus saves all ages who can understand the gospel and believe. This is why we have all ages together for worship because the, the true church is comprised of multiple generations. And let me give you an example. I want to give you an example that hopefully you can grasp. It is simple, 
It is kind of simplistic, but it's that of a wedding ring. 30 years ago when Angela and I got married, she gave me this ring. Okay? Baptism for a believer is like a wedding ring. It's an outward symbol of an inner reality. It, baptism points to your identity and your responsibility. Now, some people have the symbol without the reality. Some people wear a ring on this finger, but they're not married. Some people go and get baptized, but they're not saved. You go first the vows, then the rings, and you link it to your lifelong testimony. It's like wearing a wedding ring as a constant reminder because salvation is portrayed in baptism. Jesus performs the salvation. He's the one that secures your identity and your eternity and anchors you. Just like a ring cannot secure an earthbound marriage. Uh, you can't say, well, we're going through a hard time, but I got this ring on my finger. What it does is it reminds you of the commitment you have made. Baptism can't anchor or secure your identity in Christ. It shows that you have been brought into the body of Christ. On a far greater level, Jesus' unilateral covenant with you anchors your relationship in him. And baptism merely pictures and even reminds you of the keeping power of Christ. To be baptized, you must have a solid testimony of faith. The church should take great care to ensure that someone who's coming for baptism truly, of all ages, has a testimony of real faith in Christ. Some of you might not be saved, but you got baptized. That's not going to help you. And I think the body of Christ would be much healthier if Christians took seriously Christ's first sanctification command. It is baptism for a believer, submission to Christ. It is a confession of Christ. It is a union with, pictures the union with Christ. It is an identification with Christ's church. It is essential for believers. It's the first step on your ongoing sanctification. It's like oneness in marriage. It's memorialized with a wedding ring. Your first act of yielded obedience to Christ is baptism. And if you don't bother with baptism, you might miss the whole Christian life. If you're an unbaptized believer, you need to get baptized ASAP. If you're a, an unbeliever, baptized or not, you need to run for refuge to Jesus Christ. And don't even think about baptism until you get, come to faith in Christ. I mean, we probably have some unbaptized believers among us. We probably have some baptized unbelievers among us. But praise God, we have many baptized believers that are growing in Christ. They're not, you know, saying, I checked that box, I can go do whatever I want. They're not rest you're not resting on your works. You're resting on Christ. And you're just doing the next good thing that God puts in your path. You, don't, you didn't just stop with one obedience and say, I'm good. You're pressing on to know the Lord. You're making progress in holiness. You, you wake up daily praying, Lord, your will be done. You open up the scriptures daily saying, Lord, I'll do whatever you say. And just see your baptism as one step of obedience to Christ. Encourage others to do the same, to assure you, even to assure you in times of difficulty and pain and suffering that Christ has my life. 
You see, your baptism is a step of faith. Never makes you proud. It generates humility. And so in the face of evil, just keep doing what the church is called to do. You keep being Christ's witness. You, you keep doing what you're called to do and don't budge on the word of God. What's happening right now? The globe is spinning and people are sinning. And you keep looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, even if you feel like the most imperfect, stained failure of a Christian, I want to remind you that Paul, near the end of his life, said, I'm the worst sinner. I'm the chief of sinners. Why bother with baptism? Because God says so. And when you do what God commands... I like what Jesus said in Luke 17. After you've done everything I said, just say, we're unworthy servants. We just did what you asked. And Jesus isn't saying, you don't you know, matter, or, or you know, I don't really care about you, or what you do. He's saying, I'm everything. He's not saying you're nothing. He's saying, I'm everything. I'm the merciful sovereign who has saved your life, who is with you always, and who will save you from the wrath to come. And Lord, we praise you and thank you that you're in charge of this world. You're in charge of our lives. We, we look to you in everything, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of all the things we're contemplating in life. Lord, by your grace, help us not to make baptism more than it is, but please forgive us for being guilty of making it less than it is. Lord, help us not to see it as some silly option, but as worshipful obedience to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.